Welcome to the Get Ignited Conversations hosted by Beth Chesterton. This week's conversation features Ned Presnall, a nationally recognized expert on the opioid crisis. Ned is an adjunct professor at Washington University in St. Louis, a researcher, and an experienced addiction therapist. Ned is also the president of the board for a program that provides harm reduction and recovery support to people affected by opioid addiction. He has received press for being an outspoken critic of the way the country is approaching the opioid epidemic. Enjoy. Ned, I'm picturing this. So this is what I'm thinking. A lot of people think of a therapist. They're picturing somebody that's, you know, smoking a pipe and he's like sitting there on, you're on the couch and, and, this, and the therapist is saying, uh, tell me about your, your childhood. Tell me about your mother. And, yeah. you know, you're just picturing this thing where they're seeing patients all day long. Now, when you look at your bio and what you're doing, that's nothing like the world that you, that you, nothing like your world. Tell us about your world and the different things you do. I, my, my specialty is addiction treatment, though I'm a generalist too. I've certainly seen people over the years with depression and anxiety and other, other problems. Um, in recent years, um, I've spent uh, more and more time doing uh, family therapy and couples therapy and working uh, particularly with teens that develop substance problems. Uh, and their families. And I've, you know, recently I've been really uh, interested in that work. You know, when I first started treating addiction, I was kind of scared to work with teens. Uh, not because I like teen themselves. I've had two, I've had two foster daughters who were teenagers. I've worked in group homes uh, with teenagers. So it wasn't that I didn't like the age group. It was that when they got addicted to substances, I felt sort of hopeless about what to do. Like I didn't, I didn't feel very confident that you, that it was that you could intervene with a teen uh, who was using substances in the same way that you can intervene with an adult. Uh, and I think actually that intuition was true. You know, the the the, te- the uh, skills or the techniques that uh, I use in my practice with adults that that tend to be effective and help them to recover from alcoholism and drug addiction are not the same tools that we use with teens. But in the past few years, I have developed a strategy for working with teens and their families that I feel more and more confident in. And I have some team members that I work with. Um, So that's been one of my uh, most recent focuses. I also uh, have been involved in the addiction world in a policy advocacy capacity. I was a consultant for the state targeted opioid response, uh, which came out in 2017. So, I mean, I could talk ad nauseum about the way that addiction is treated in the United States. Basically, a lot of addiction treatment is funded, pu- publicly funded. Uh, a, a good majority of, of treatment is publicly funded. And there's a couple sources for that. There's Medicaid dollars, and then there's grants that every state gets every year. And as we face the opioid crisis, the epidemic of opioid deaths, the federal government uh, supplemented the annual grants that they give to each state with some really pretty massive grants, uh, which doubled, for instance, the the amount of money a state was getting in a given year. And so in just three years, Missouri got 65 million extra dollars just to target the opioid crisis. And I was involved in the very beginning, kind of by happenstance. I mean, I was a known quantity, you know, in the state as an educator and such, but I happened to um, get involved with the woman who was going to become the director of the grant, uh, Rachel Winograd, and she's now directed multiple opioid grants in the state. And she was just getting involved in the state. She had kind of newly gotten her PhD and she came to find me as an expert on approaches to opioid use disorder. 
And so we really started work. I started working with her and the state very closely to try to say, hey, how should we use this money? This is like a grand opportunity. We've got a, this huge amount of money to try to basically save lives. Because at that point, you know, it was when it was right around the time that opioid deaths had surpassed car accidents as the number one cause of accidental death in the country. Well, that number has just kept rising since then. And it this year is the worst ever. 2020, the I just got some preliminary data on 2020 this year. St. Louis County and St. Louis City, it's been worse than ever. COVID is probably affecting that quite a lot. The way you die from opioid overdose is uh, respiratory. And I was just talking with Rachel today, Rachel Winograd, who runs those grants and said, you know, it could be that people are getting COVID that causes respiratory um, involvement. And then they're using opioids. Now they've got a compromised respiratory system and they're overdosing more, more rapidly. It could also be, of course, all these social determinants of health. People are more stressed. They're more isolated. Um, and the opioid addiction will take its toll for those reasons as well. So anyway, I got involved with uh, the state um, trying to help them develop an a intelligent way to use this money. Now, this is a long process of, of years now, you know, since I was working with the state before 2017, but since 2017 in these grants. And all along the way, I was making recommendations that could the, the state did not consider feasible. Um, the main one was that uh, the one thing we know that saves lives and people that have opioid use disorder is getting the medical treatment. There are two FDA approved medications for people that are opioid dependent that significantly reduce their mortality risk. One of them I'm sure you've heard of is methadone, goes back since the 60s. There's a large stigma around it, but all the research, decades of research has supported it as the number one way to save lives in people that have severe opioid addiction. And when I'm talking about opioid addiction, most of the people that are dying, they're not you know, just using pills, they're injecting IV fentanyl. And so when you transition someone who's injecting fentanyl to methadone, their quality of life, their uh, risk for, for death goes, the one goes up, the one goes down, and it's the, one, the most effective thing we know. But in 2003, a medication came out called uh, Suboxone, and Suboxone is a bit like methadone in the way that it works and that it's long acting and it sort of decreases the cravings people have for opioids. But it has these really amazing qualities in that you can't overdose on it. You could take your whole bottle of Suboxone and it has a ceiling effect for respiratory depression. So it's a lot safer. And it became this new way to treat opioid addiction, which could be used throughout the entire medical system. Right. You didn't have to be at a methadone clinic to get it. A primary care physician can prescribe it. Pediatricians get waived to prescribe it. I mean, it is highly versatile. But so what happened, that was back in 2003. And since 2003 till today, it's just been a skyrocket of deaths. And a, only a small fraction of those people who are dying are ever given the opportunity to be on this life-saving medication. And so I helped the, the state develop uh, with Rachel this med called medication first approach where we say we've got to get people this medication. It's the only thing we know that saves lives in all the clinical research we have. And only a small percentage of people are getting it because the system that we've built with these grants since the 1960s doesn't trust medicine. It's, you know, it's your basic 12-step programming, AA, a lot of wonderful people that have, that have changed the lives of themselves and their loved ones and have, and have done amazing work. But with opioid addiction, it's not sufficient. We can't protect people from dying from opioid overdose through using a mutual support or even a counseling approach. I'm a therapist. I'm a counselor, a social worker. Mm -hmm. I won't treat someone with opioid use disorder 
without helping them get medication. You know, I use a medication first approach in my practice. They come and they say, I have opioid addiction. I'd say, first thing we need to do is get you on medication and off the, off the illicit opioids. Uh, and then we can use counseling and, and, and such to help you. So the medication first approach was launched. Um, it was partial, you know, it was uh, a lot more people got access to medication. But at the end of the day, what I became aware of is that the system of psychosocial treatment that we've built in the country is not really built to transition over to providing medical care. And so I started saying, hey, you know, and I said this from the beginning, but it was shot down and over, over and over again, I finally said, look, the only way we're really going to get people the access to medical care that they need in this opioid epidemic is to start funding medical treatment, start funding opioid treatment within medical settings and not trying to change these traditional counseling settings into medical settings because they resist it. The business model doesn't work for it and they're not doing it all over the country. Right. And finally, I said this one too many times, and I was, I was publicly fired as a consultant for the state. It was written up on the front page of the Post-Dispatch, and that was sort of the end of years of up and down advocacy for changes in Missouri. Ironically, Missouri's medication first model is hailed as one of like the most innovative models in the country for the use of these STR and SOR dollars. And I'm here as one of the, one of the primary developers of it to tell you it's not sufficient. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's light years away from what a lot of states are doing. And it's not a sufficient approach if we want to get people rational medical care for opioid use disorder more broadly. Why were people critical of it? Why were they critical of what you're saying? And, you know, what were you yeah, doing? Right. You fire, you know, front page right. news. Okay, so I got to give you like a couple a couple of sort of contextual pieces that might make it uh, make more sense. Prior to 2003, the programs that treated addiction in our country use a 12-step model primarily, um, made some, a few other counseling approaches, but they were counseling programs and they define themselves over and against medical treatment. So like they would say, we're, we're, we're drug-free treatment for opioid addiction. So some people would go to methadone treatment, but a lot of people would still go to counseling programs hoping that they could get well without medication. And that was sort of the foundation of, of this program. Now, again, this is the, this, these are these programs that take in a billion dollars of funding every year for the treatment of, of substance use throughout the country. So when buprenorphine came out, or Suboxone, I called it, in 2003, these agencies had a choice because they said, well, this medication came out that we can actually use. It doesn't have to be used in a methadone clinic. And there were, at first it was an attitudinal problem. Like we're not gonna use this medication. That's not what we do. But then the research just kept coming out showing that you put someone on Suboxone and then all the things you want them to do, want, want them to help them with as a client in counseling, to help them get a job and you know go back to school and take care of their kids and do all the things that anybody wants to do. They do much more effectively when they're taking this medication, right? It's not inconsistent. They even go, they even go to 12 step programming more when they're on this medication, right? So they're not, it's not inconsistent with a psychosocial approach. It, it makes the psychosocial approach possible with opioid use disorder. But a lot of places, even today, will say, nope, we don't, uh, we don't take any, we won't use this medication. We won't even accept anyone on this medication. Well, at some point it becomes a problem where as a country, we're public, these are our tax dollars. We're publicly funding a mode of treatment that we know doesn't work and it's costing lives in epidemic proportions. So as a society, what kind of responsibility do we have to say, hey, we wouldn't do this in any other part of medicine. In any other 
area of medicine, if there's a treatment that is clinically effective, and then there's another treatment that has no evidence to support it, and people use the continue to deny patients, publicly funded uh, agencies, denied people evidence-based treatment, it would be malpractice, right. right? Like it just wouldn't happen. Only in addiction do we say, well, science is one way to treat and, and the other way to treat is whatever you feel like doing that day, right? And, and we'll, we'll even fund that with our public dollars. So the, the first one was attitudinal. It's a philosophy. People feel like you're not really sober if you're taking a medication. It's sort of a, a moralistic problem. But I'll tell you, I, I started training long before the SDR and SOR grants in medication-assisted treatment for the, for the Addiction Technology Transfer Center, which is also a publicly funded educational body, federally funded. And I went all over the Midwest training counselors and nurses in medication-assisted treatment, you know, of this sort of medication, kind of like the medication-first model. And I didn't find that it was hard to change attitudes in the frontline workers. When I would show them the evidence and I would explain my own clinical experience with helping people with addiction that were using medications and, you know, did all the, the analogies and illustrations and said, you know, how we, how we used to conceive of addiction, how we conceive of it now, what the medications do. When I would give those presentations, people would say, absolutely, we need our patients to have these medications. We're 100% on board. You know, there would be a few people that would be philosophically against this sort of treatment but still nothing was changing. Eventually I got older <laughs> and I realized that it's not about the attitudes. It's about this system of treatment centers that have been funded for 50 years and their business structures. They take in a billion dollars a year. They send it to all the same agencies. They do it the way they've done it in the past. There's no consumer choice in where they go to treatment. Right. And yeah, it is ironic. This, is so ironic. Our med this country loves medicine, except for this particular illness. Right. So this system that we built, these agencies have a business model. The reimbursement model is that you have people come in and you provide primarily group therapy. Like, you, you know, all these people that go to groups and they have to go to so many groups when they're in residential and they have to go to so many groups in their intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization. And and part of the reason we do so much group therapy is because it's cheap. The insurance companies like to pay for it, right? Mm -hmm. So you put people together in a group of 15 or 30, though the maximum size group and one type of group in, in state-funded treatment is 30 people. Another type of group is 15. And for those 15 or 30 people, I bill, you know, $25, about or 15 to $20 for each of those groups for each person. So mm -hmm. let's say I have 15 people in group and I bill $20. That's $300 for that one hour group. How much am I paying that counselor? $25 with benefits, $30 at most. So there's a tenfold margin on that group service where when I submit my claim to the state, I'm getting $300, I'm paying my counselor $30, and I'm keeping $270. Now I'm not keeping it. Most of these are nonprofits, but we all know that nonprofits are nonprofits, but they still build up an infrastructure of salaries to pay and benefits to pay and people have their lives and their careers that are wrapped up in this system of care. So now Ned comes along and says, actually the evidence doesn't support requiring people to go to 15 hours a group a week. They have like jobs to go to and kids to raise and, and it doesn't show any effectiveness in preventing mortality or keeping people sober for opioid use disorder. So really what they need is low threshold medication first treatment 
And so what does that look like? Instead of going to 15 hours a group where there's a $270 margin on every, every hour of service, they go see a doctor and it's one on one, the doctor and them. How much margin do you think there is on that service for that, for that agency? They can barely get the doctor in the door for what the state reimburses for a doctor's visit. And not only that, but if I'm using grant money to pay for treatment, now this patient goes to the pharmacy to pick up a medication that costs $450 a month. How much margin is, is there on that $450 that now I'm paying because I'm paying for publicly funded treatment? Zero. There's no pass through to the agency for the ph pharmacy. The pharmacy gets all that. So now I basically have designed a model of care that's totally unfeasible. And in their most candid moments, the leaders of these agencies that I worked with during these years said, Ned's saying this about our business model. It's true. We cannot do this. We cannot sustain a business model that's based on the type of care that will actually, that actually is supported by evidence and will save lives. Okay, Ned, you've taken us a long way in a few minutes, but you've told me a story before about the guy wasn't doing it and the patient, yet there was a terrible outcome. Do you, can you share that story? There are so many stories like this. I mean, there, there really are a dime a dozen and every one is a person's life or, you know, a, a couple's child or, or whatever. Um, so this particular story, I was doing a medication first training in Springfield, Missouri, and it was at a, just a traditional treatment program. And the doctors, you know, it was advanced enough that there were four doctors who, were, who came to this talk. And um, I gave a medication first, you know, my basic medication first presentation. And the clinical director of the program walked out in the first five minutes. So that was a signal, right? She was not interested in, in this uh, approach to treatment. The doctors came up to me afterwards and said, oh, you know, thank you so much. So obviously, they're, they're trained in to believe medical science. So they, when I was presenting medical science, it made a lot of sense to them. But one of them came up and said, you know, we had a patient who came in and um, he was a young man with high functioning autism. And he was, you know, so addicted to IV heroin. This was before the fentanyl epidemic. And, um, you know, before he got into treatment, he overdosed three times in our local hospital, Cox Hospital. Um, he overdosed three times. Um, and really, this kid was going to die. I mean, there was no, this illness was going to kill him. Well, finally got into our program, and we, we have Suboxone. Uh, and they had done that. So, again, they weren't at the most, most traditional program. They'd incorporated Suboxone, and they put this young man on Suboxone maintenance. He was doing really well. And his family said, you know, that next nine months or year was the best year in, the, in a decade of his life, right? Like he was stable. He worked a job. He wasn't using heroin and he was doing really well. And he went through the whole program. He did all the groups that were required of him and was sort of in a maintenance phase. And then he started smoking, uh, started smoking weed again. You know, if, if you know anything about high functioning autism, it comes with a tremendous amount of social anxiety. And weed can be is one of the really common ways that some some people with high function autism self medicate to try to deal with that social anxiety or difficulty with sleep or just the all the different symptoms that come with that. So the clinical program had an act, sort of an abstinence based policy, which is if you if you're not committed to abstinence, you can't be part of this program. Well, being part of the program was his access to medical treatment. So they basically said if you don't stop smoking weed then we're going to discharge you, administratively discharge you from the program. So this doctor, um, who I came to know later and became, you know, did a lot of other things with him, um, really very sweet man. He said, you know, I went to the clinical director. So finally, this kid was not doing what he was supposed to do. He um, kept smoking weed, kept coming up positive on his urine screens. 
And the clinical director said, fine, we gave him his options. We gave him his, you know, these contingencies and now we're discharging him. And that would mean he could no longer see the doctor. And the doctor went to the clinical director and said, we cannot do this. Like he, he, this is a life-saving medication for him. And it's sure it's not an ideal, ideal outcome, perhaps that he's smoking weed, but, but we can't kick him out just because he's smoking weed. Like this is, it's just not the way you do medical treatment where you kick someone off a medication that's working in one way because they're not doing something else you want them to do. And um, the director said, no. And in these programs, these directors are in charge, right? Like these are not medical treatment centers. They're medical, they're, they're treatment centers that contract with doctors. And so he, he was kicked off his medication and he was, he was dead within a month. And, and these, these, I'm telling you these stories, I've just heard so many of them. Like, I mean, I shouldn't feel more about them. Like this is, this is happening every day around our country today. People are being discharged from medical care for not doing counseling. And I'm a counselor. I don't want people to have to talk with me, that, that it's a requirement to talk to me or they lose their medical treatment. Like who, who wants to be in that position? But we have so misconfigured in our minds or not reconfigured in our minds through the last 20 years of science or 50 years of science, what addiction is and what it responds to. It is the ugly stepchild of mental health. So as we've all come to, um, more and more of us have come to see things like depression and bipolar disorder as true medical, physical illnesses, addiction still a good part of the country and a good part of people within themselves say, well, it's still just a choice. You still are either using drugs or not. I mean, I've never been addicted. So why would someone do that to their lives? But addiction is no less a physical illness than depression, schizophrenia, diabetes, or cancer. I mean, it's a, it's a truly embodied physical illness. One of the things that makes it most complicated to treat it is that you have to somehow engage the voluntary system of the individual to help them get well. That makes it complicated that it's actually the voluntary system that is impaired by the illness itself, but it doesn't make the illness less physical or less real or, or a more of a moral problem. Now, I'll grant it, it's confusing because addiction has moral symptoms. People that get addicted when they're in active addiction do lie and cheat and steal. And, you know, and so there's this, there's this moral effect of the illness but when someone is in recovery, they ha- it, it's obviously not affecting their underlying character because, you know, I've, I've seen some of the most uh, ethical, wonderful, moral people who, when they're in recovery, you would never say that they, were, they had any ethical or moral problems at all. The addiction causes those as a symptom of the illness. It's not an effect of their character. It's a confusing illness, for sure. But Darina asked the question from Boston, do you think it's because there's still such a stigma about addiction and some people still hold the view that it's only weak people who become addicts until it comes to their front door or their door, of course, and they realize what a dreadful illness it is? Yeah, I think that's a that's a big part of it, you know, um, and you can see this in, in politics. I can't come up with an example off the top of my head, but even people who you would think would take a hard line against addiction. And then you see like, wow, they're actually really, you know, knowledgeable about this. And then you find out the close family member had addiction. And so they learned about it. You know, when it comes to your door, you, um, you learn it in a much different way. You develop empathy and then you learn the, the kind of the science around it. I used to think that it was a primarily attitudinal problem. And then I came to realize that it was really a money problem that this business structure of these agencies and the fact that they have such a lock on these federal funds is the primary reason that we haven't been able to shift the model from a psychosocial model to a medical model in the management of OUD. Yeah. 
if you had a magic wand, what would you be doing with the government funded money? I mean, with all the money and the treatment. Yeah. So very simple. Uh, I mean, I do two things. One is we have two systems of, we have three systems of care for people with illnesses that are our safety net system. These are for people that either have Medicaid or, or, or have to use sliding scale or no insurance, right? This is not necessarily the commercially insured system, but it's the largest system, right? It's, a, it's, it's a huge. Um, we have a system called uh, of primary care called federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics. They're in every community and they get Medicaid dollars and some money for the uninsured to do sliding scale treatment. And this is where people go if, if, if they have, are low, on the lower economic, um, have lower economic status. And they're, the FQHCs are amazing. They're, they're the people that work there, they're, they're, they're run by doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners, and they're well-funded. Um, they're pretty well-funded by comparison within the systems I'm talking about. Um, I've been super impressed in working with them. Then you have the mental health treatment centers, um, the community mental health centers, and the community mental health centers have also become medical because we realized that when when a somewhat serious mental illness comes in to get treatment, they first need to see a psychiatrist. Like that's the first thing they need if they're schizophrenic or bipolar. And so the community mental health centers have become fairly medically focused too, but they don't. They have not traditionally treated addiction. Um, they, they, in fact, the doctors that, that do the mental health treatment there oftentimes don't want to treat addiction. They have enough on their plates and it has been divided in the way we funded it since the sixties. So you have the community mental health centers. Now there is a movement to create an entity that merges the mental health treatment centers with the addiction treatment centers. That is one thing that has, that the federal government has tried to incentivize, but it's very, very partial at this point. And by and large, the mental health centers, community mental health centers, CMHCs are separate. So you've got the medical, the mental health, and then you've got this addiction funded treatment center. This is the one that got $65 million to address the opioid crisis and gets, you know, 20, 30, $40 million every year, and then gets a lot of Medicaid dollars as well. So it's a, well, it's a, I wouldn't say it's well-funded, but it's the most funded system for addiction. I would phase out the addiction treatment system entirely. And I would, I don't know exactly what I would do with, with how, how I would do with mental health, but the people that are most equipped to manage addiction are the primary care federally qualified health centers. They already have added behavioral health specialists. They've already added psychiatric consults. So they've already built out their own system of uh, managing uh, behavioral health problems. And when they get into addiction treatment, they do it in the most rational, humane way. So I'll give you an example of that. But I don't think the business model of the addiction treatment center that was built on mutual support programming, I love AA, I send people to it every day. It's a great mutual support program. It's not medicine. So I would phase out a, a, a heavily funded system of care that's based on mutual support, some counseling, obviously, and I would build up the capacity of primary care to address addiction within the normal mainstream healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Where, do, where do we see people with addiction? We see them in the emergency rooms when they overdose, right? We see them with IV drug-related infections uh, in, the, in the infectious disease departments, in the hospitalized, and we see them in primary care every day. And so they're being taken from these medical systems 
and they're being sent out to this place that doesn't provide medical care, even they have, though they have significant medical problems and an illness that needs to be managed medically. So basically continuing to build out the primary care, care behavioral and these $65 million, we could have done that. We could have taken the $65 million and invested it to build out addiction treatment within primary care rather than sending it into this system that, that cannot manage opioid use disorder effectively. Now there are exceptions. Oh my gosh, there, there are exceptions, but it's where I'm talking at a systemic level, right? There's obviously agencies that in this system that do it well, but by and large, it's done so inefficiently. I'll give you an example. So in that same area, Springfield, there was a federally qualified health center. And, and when I was advocating from the very beginning, I was saying, send the money to the FQHCs, ramp up their capacity. One of the things these substance use treatment centers have had trouble with is getting doctors. They're not medical centers. The doctors don't necessarily want to work there. And so they're looking to try to get a doctor to come in to provide these life-saving medications. They don't have a business model to support the treatment anyway. So, so once they do start providing medical treatment, they're um, bleeding out financially. Whereas the primary healthcare system, that's all they do. A person comes in, they see a doctor for a chronic condition, diabetes, hypertension, now add opioid use disorder to the mix. Now we're managing your opioid use disorder with these medications and behavioral health supports like counselors like me, and we can manage it at a low, in a low threshold level and the business model is already there. That's one of the main reasons I'm advocating for this is because I just don't see a transition to an actual medication first model for opioid use disorder to be capable within this system. It's always gonna be inching back to providing as much counseling as possible because that's what, that's what helps their bottom line. That's not insidious. That's just, I mean, that's, it's, it's insidious. It's not purposeful. It's just that that's what agencies do is they do what's, you know, they're incentivized by finances like the rest of us, right? But the FQHCs have a model that already provides targeted medical care for chronic conditions and manages it over time. So it's not a, it's not a stretch for them. All we have to do with those systems, which, which I'll give you the example, okay, is to, is to give them a little bit of training and treating OUD and it's like everything else for them. So opioid use disorder. So I was advocating for this from the very beginning. They said, absolutely not. We do not send dollars out of this system. We send them to our providers. Now, keep in mind that these providers that are our providers, you also can't become one. There's been a moratorium on becoming a provider in the system for 20 years. So they have a true lock on these federal dollars. It's like being a distributor for a beer company or Coca-Cola. Yeah. And, it, and it, was only, it was only when I said this loudly enough that I think the dollars need to come from here. Now, I, when I criticized the treatment model and said, we ought to do medication first, all that, they could stomach that. But when I said in a public fashion, we need to start taking the dollars we're giving here and putting it here where we have strong evidence it works and saves lives, they're like, no, nah, we can't listen to that anymore. You wrote that, what was your tweet? You said, apparently you can talk, you had a really uh, snappy yeah. tweet about that. Well, I... Okay, so that actually goes into the Springfield story, which is there's this, uh, so an FQHC in Springfield where I'd done a training, a different agency, a federally qualified health center. Again, these are agencies that, that manage chronic illnesses and people of low economic income that have Medicaid or are uninsured. And um, they do a lot of behavioral health treatment too now as they've increased their scope of practice over the years. They're federally funded, just like the, uh, the mental health and the addiction treatment centers are. They're uh, funded through a different agency. So this one FKHC that really loved when I did a training for them, they're like, we want to do this. We have, we've got to do this. We've already done, we, they'd already started a addiction treatment program for pregnant and uh, postpartum women. They were already involved in it. And they're like, but this is what we need to do. Medication first, we can do this. Then absolutely we're going to do it. So I went to the state and I said, look, this is an agency that you need to fund. They have doctors, 
They're ready to ramp it up quickly. They're in a high hit area. The traditional provider in their neck of the woods doesn't even believe in this kind of treatment. We still have an attitudinal to work for them. They don't, you know, they, they don't want to provide medication first. So like fund a place that's ready to do it. This is an epidemic, right? It's a crisis. And they said, absolutely not. We're not, we're not funding FQHCs. Okay, fine. The medication first model came out of a, a failed attempt to get them to fund the agencies that already do medication first. This medical director said, all right, well, we, we want to do this so badly. We're going to go find the money ourselves. Keep in mind, the, the vast majority of folks that they need to treat are uninsured. So they can't just start a big expensive program and not have money to fund it. So they went to the Missouri Foundation for Health and they got a million dollars over three years. And they immediately became the largest opioid use disorder treatment provider in the Springfield area, right? Even more than these, these much more well-funded agencies that get, get millions of dollars from the, from the state government. They served a thousand people in like 2017, 2018, got a thousand people in this program. People were driving from two hours away to get into this low threshold program because it was humane. They didn't say, okay, well, yes, we'll, we'll bring you in and and you're going to have to do, you know, you know, 20 hours a group and you'll, then you'll see the doctor. I mean, it was, it was just not, it was just, a, it's just a humane approach, right? It's the way we treat every other illness. In the same time period between 2017 and 2018 with the medication first model or over a similar time period, when $60 million were spent, the state got about seven or 8,000 people treatment with this medication. So with $1 million, this agency got a uh, thousand people treated, and with sixty million dollars, the state got seven thousand people treated. You do the cost efficiency math on that. If we take that sixty million dollars and did million dollar grants or two million dollar grants all around the state to the FQHCs to build out their opioid use disorder treatment, we could have had so much more access to care. Meanwhile, our numbers of deaths and lack our lack of access continues to be a horrible problem and our numbers of deaths have continued to skyrocket. It's okay. not about, it's just about cost effectiveness. That would have been, and still is, the most cost-effective way to get people humane, effective treatment. It's a non-starter politically because this group that guards this money is um, guards it. And that comes to your original question about, about the tweet. Who knew we're in such a high-risk conversation because I'm sure the state really doesn't like when you start talking about what they're doing. Oh, no, I mean, I recently was, I, I mean, a month or two ago, I, I was at, I can't remember why I was there, but I testified and the, the next people up were the, the head of the, the Department of Mental Health. They're like, well, we know Ned thinks this, but um, no, they don't, they don't like to hear it. On the other hand, I mean, I'm just like one, you know, a voice crying out in the wilderness because this money is so well, well so well guarded um, and it, t- it would take such political leverage to, to free it up. So Jordan Valley, which is this FQHC, at the same time as this is all going on, I work as, I also have a, a foot in research. And we've gotten a grant to look at Medicaid data to see where people's treatment was actually most effective in, Medi- in Missouri. And we found that when you got treated in, a, in an office-based setting, like a federally qualified health center or just a normal medical practice, you had better retention in treatment with these medicines. You had fewer, a lower risk for emergency room visits and a lower risk for hospitalization. So we had some really solid research to support the message that we were giving. And I did that work through with a collaboration with us in the psychiatry department at WashU and the social work department. So the Stateless Plus Dispatch, Jesse Bogan wrote up a story on this place, this uh, Jordan Valley. They wrote up like a really kind of a rich story on Jordan Valley. You can look it up as a front page, St. Louis uh, Post Dispatch. 
a long story about hey this place does it differently they they have walk they're the only place in this in this in the country in the state where you can get walk-in treatment for opioid use disorder all these other places even though they got all the money all these other places have long wait lists it's hard to get in they're not using medication uh consistently and yet this place went out and got a million dollars and now they they take anybody who comes in right and gets them immediate access that day to life-saving medical treatment so the St. Louis Post Dispatch wrote that up and they cited the, the research article as a, to support kind of the, that's the research side of things is actually this also shows that we also have evidence that this works to treat people in these primary care settings. And um, so, you know, naturally I, I went online and, and I, to my 17 Twitter followers, I, I tweeted, hey, you know, there's this St. Louis Post Dispatch article on, you know, Jordan Valley, we can do things differently. We really need to break the lock that these uh, traditional providers have on federal money so that we can invest in places where we get outcomes and we save people's lives. And so I wrote a couple of tweets about that. And then, then there's this group called Missouri Coalition for Behavioral Health. And they are a provider representation group. They're a nonprofit with the mission to improve mental health and addiction treatment. But they're really a lobby group. So, you know, when people talk about you know, publicly funded lobbyists. I never really knew what that meant. I'm like, what do you mean publicly funded lobbyists? That makes no sense to me. But basically the money comes down from the federal government, a billion dollars a year into the whole system. And, and over the last few years, multiple billions of dollars, it goes to this single state agency, the agency in every state that gets to distribute this money. And in Missouri, it distributes to the same providers for the past decades, multiple decades. And you can't break into that system. They do not offer new contracts. The providers to keep a lock on that money, basically pay dues to a provider organization. The provider organization, which is dedicated to uh, quality, uh, you know, mental health and addiction treatment, have full-time lobbyists. They, the, first of all, the whole organization's in Jeff City, and they have full-time lobbyists that go across. And if you ever were going to take a dollar out of that pot and send it anywhere anywhere else, then that the same day the head of that organization would be calling the head of the Department of Mental Health and say, look, you can't send this money out of this system, right? Or else all these representatives that we have cultivated as lobbyists will create lots of problems for you, right? Obviously they don't say that on the phone, but that's the relationship. This organization has so much power. And I tell you, I kid you not, the day that I wrote a tweet about this system and that I think money should go across from it, literally, the head of that organization called the head of the Department of Mental Health and say, we can't have we can't have this happening. You cannot have people critic criticizing the flow of money to our agency. But what happened, which was sort of which was sort of comical, was the one of the full-time lobbyists at this organization responded to me on Twitter. And he said, What are you talking about, Ned? What do you mean that there are agencies that have a lock on the federal funds? And so I wrote a 27-thread tweet explaining to him what he already knew. Exactly how all the money flows and how it's protected and how his organization is protecting it and how that prevents us from funding the agencies that are best suited to respond to the opioid epidemic. And I was, that was when I was, I mean, apparently I was fired for the first tweet, but the next day I was fired. My role as a consultant for the state on the opioid project. As we know, this is the helicopter generation. Now, I don't know any parents who say I'm a helicopter parent. It's really... <laughs> horrible thing to say about your, no parent wants to say it. I loved what Paul said, who I'm married to, when he said, I'm not a helicopter, I'm a concierge parent. And I thought that was really funny, right? But Ned helps also 
people help get these kids out of the nest, and I'm talking about when there's not an opioid addiction, a really serious addiction issue going on. Ned, talk to us a little bit about helping parents get these kids from nest to successful life. Just an average kid. Any suggestions and what are you seeing in the parents today? Yeah, so I mean, my one of my colleagues and I just did a three-hour parenting uh, seminar on um, how we are just kind of our parenting and contingency management for teens and young adults. So you're asking me to sum up a lot of ideas in like 10 seconds. But basically, there's a lot of changes in the way we intervene at every stage from 13 to 25, right? I mean, like, that's just like every year, there's so much development and any and there's a lot of individual differences. So I just want to say all that. Um, when they're actually transitioning to college, I'll just say one of the things we're doing. And you know, we've learned a little bit from COVID about this is just keeping people connected through Zoom. But we're doing family therapy um, where w- when kids are going off to college and parents are concerned about them managing their mental health or, or whatever it is, um, where we do family therapy and it gives the parents a connection with their young adult uh, and a clinician during that transition. Because a lot of times that is the time when a, a kid will, depression or anxiety will really get really bad or their drug addiction will get really take off and they'll fail that first year of school. I mean, we treat plenty of people that are just coming back from that first um, semester, a year of school, you know, licking their wounds and now they're home and they're not in school anymore and they're on leave or whatever. And the goal of this program is to prevent that from happening. And what we find is that, I mean, I, I feel like our role is really humble in the sense that we do these monthly or more, I mean, it's very individualized, but we do these monthly meetings with parents and the teen or the young adult who's becoming, you know, 18, 19, 20. And I basically interview the teen on all aspects of their mental health. And the parents are just in awe because the, the teen just sort of answers the questions and, you know, in, in depth. And I ask follow-up questions and they keep answering. They're like, you got out of my teen in 15 minutes. What I couldn't get out with every, with every text or phone call, like I can't chase this information out of them. And the reason for that is developmental. Teens just naturally are being private towards their parents. But when you have a third party there who's, you know, um, clinically trained and can ask the right questions and ask the hard questions. I mean, I'll ask about suicidality. I'll, I'll ask about, you know, how are you using, how much alcohol are you using? What are you doing this? And the matter of factness of the conversation is, is um, compelling to everyone. It, it brings down the anxiety for everyone. And it, it's not, I mean, managing mental health problems and addiction problems are, is an ongoing process. And so this is just one intervention that helps to keep the family system connected during a transition when kids often will, you know, really go downhill. When my daughter just went off to college, I said to Ned, help us. I want to start booking some meetings so that we can have a real conversation. Mm-hmm. We only had one conversation. And all of a sudden I'm not doing the thing at midnight where I'm thinking, oh gosh, where's, you know, where is she? What's she doing? It helped so much. One conversation. With Ned. And part of it, part of it is the, and this often is the structure. Part of it is the conversation we have that then you know Beth or another parent would listen to, and then part of it is the team doesn't ever doesn't or doesn't generally want to stay on for a whole hour. Sometimes they do, but then then we'll stop and we'll process it together, right? Like what are they saying? What do we see? What should we be worried about? And having someone frame that for a parent that's just naturally anxious about their child is helpful, right? I've had people work from out of town. coming, flying into town to meet with Ned with their kids. So Ned, you are so generous with your time. As everybody on this call knows, you have this very full life. He's a professor. He's a researcher. He runs therapy clinics. Okay. Entire 
organizations filled with wonderful therapists and resources, just to name a few things. He has little kids. Ned, one of the things we like to do, if there's an organization that you love that we could, if anybody's so moved to make a donation, is there something that you'd like us to consider? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm the, um, I'm on the board of the Missouri Network for Opiate Reform Recovery Mo Network. It's a harm reduction organization. Um, these are the folks that go out on the, in the streets. They have an ambulance that like a ambulance that goes out and they do needle exchange the base and give out food to people and try to build relationships and then refer them to treatment. So basically they're building relationships with really the most vulnerable members of our society. These are the ones that are driving up that overdose death rate. And they're going out into the hardest areas of the city um, to give them, to treat them with dignity, to say, you know what, we, we might not be able to stop you from shooting heroin today, but let's see if we can give you clean needles so you don't get HIV or hepatitis. Let's give you some food that you can take home with you. You know, let's have a smile and talk with you a little bit and not judge you because you're a victim of what is really one of the most horrible illnesses you can you can have. You know, Mo Network is definitely the organization. Now, one of the comments that we have from Gloria, who is in Tulsa, we've got two Tulsas today. Gloria said, Ned is a warrior. And I do think, Ned, that that's sort of one of the things that really shines through in the work that you do, is that you've taken your intelligence, you've taken your ability to take a lot of information, put it into a grid, access it, be able to make compelling arguments. And then you have that warrior quality um, that is so fantastic. Now, if we have more time, this is what I want to say to you. When did you first see your warrior show up? Where did it come from? And I'm kind of, you know, you have your own story as a young man of some crazy things you did. And I don't mean dangerous. Yeah, I've, I have always been a bit of an, a, more than a bit of an adventure. You know, I, I when I was a young kid, I would I would uh, go hitchhike around the country, and you know, I mean, I have all kinds of stories where that that are that were more of like the young person warrior, which I'll just take kind of take on the world. You know, when I uh, was 24, I bought a motorcycle in rural China and drove it a thousand miles back from rural China to Beijing by myself, and um, I'd never ridden a motorcycle. I bought it from the guy. And then he gave me a two hour lesson and I just started writing. I broke down. I mean, I've always, I've always had that sort of spirit. I think it, it took on this sort of quality of wanting to deal with real problems, right? You know, to, to delve into something like the opioid epidemic and to think like, no, if we're adventurous enough, we can solve it. And that's what's lacking is like, look, I understand. I mean, I have empathy for all the people that work in a system that I think needs to be defunded, right? You know, I think we need, obviously we need to do that intelligently and, and with care, but at the end of the day, those federal dollars we're collecting are for people who are dying of an illness we're trying to treat. And I think that has to be the top priority. So yeah, if we had more time, I'll take it, tell you about my adventure stories, but uh, um, I've always, I've always gotten myself into messes and, and enjoyed getting out of them. Here's, here's the real, here's the real takeaway. I, yeah, that seems to be the case. I get myself into messes that I then have adventures getting out of. We have a structure in my family called the Ned Venture, or the Dad Venture. My, my friends used to call it the Ned Venture. My kids call it the Dad Venture, where we go out with the kids and we will wind up really, you know, sort of remote or, or in some sort of problem. And the joke now is that my wife is always the one that has to rescue us. Right. So she 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 always uh, dogs on me with my friends They're like, oh, every every weekend there's a Dad Venture, but I'm the one that has to drive and. And, and rescue him. So, uh, but my kids then learned sort of this, uh, this sort of celebratory way to engage with life's problems and say, no, we can keep going forward. We don't know how we're going to get back, but we'll figure out a way back. Well, the joke now is that mom's typically the way back. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Ann Heisler says, or Annie Clark says, it wasn't good enough for you to accept the status quo. It takes courage to look at things differently and find solutions. This community today, I just want to thank everybody for coming, for taking your time to do this today. Sad, oh, Sandy wrote, dad venture and mom evacuation. That's cute. Everyone, Ned, thank you so much. This is the Ignite Method. And if you want to follow us um, at ignitemethodcoach.com, we will send newsletters. We're going to send, I'm going to capture some of Ned's pearls of wisdom. I might actually ask him some of the questions you all asked in the chat. Well, thank you all for coming. I know it always means a lot to me that people want to even talk about these things that I'm so interested in. And I, I appreciate the Ignite Method. I very much appreciate you, Beth. Ned, come back and visit. We want to hear. You're working on an essay that we might just get to hear about if you choose to come back. And thanks, everybody. Have a great night and see you all soon.